0: return thanks for the food of God's Word. Father, we are thankful that we're able to hold a copy of your Word in our hands, that we're able to read it for ourselves, that uh, when somebody teaches us the Word, we can go and we can look at it. And as a teacher, uh, the last thing we should ever fear is that somebody actually would pick up the Word and check to see if what we said is true, or even to challenge us, because in the end, your Word will not contradict itself. And your word will prove itself to be faithful and dependable because you are the author of the word and you are faithful and dependable to what you've written. Thankful that the word is not complicated to understand. There's very many statements in the word that are just very plain, but we struggle sometimes with the plainness of those statements. And as we struggle with those, then we sometimes reinterpret and we do complicate your word. And as we look at it this morning, we ask that you would help us to understand these things that are plainly written on your the pages of your word, and how they impact the way we anticipate our future. And we thank you for this then. Amen. We take your Bibles this morning. I, excuse me, I wasn't up here yet. It's Wednesday night. We, we don't have anybody signed up for Wednesday night yet, so as. Um, well, um. Okay. Did anybody sign up? I guess we're going to meet in the church basement again. So, okay. We can do it at my house. I'm hesitant because my husband is doing this hunting thing right now, oh. so I don't know if he will be there or not. But I will be there. So okay. We can do it at my house. That's fine. Okay. So. Okay. So we'll be at we'll be at Butler's Wednesday night then for okay. supper. Okay, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, look with me at verse 18. A couple statements that we want to look at. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 18, I don't have these up here. But he says, now where there is forgiveness of these things, that is of sins and lawlessness, back from verse 17, there is no longer an offering for sin. said, it's done. Christ offered one offering for sin doesn't have to be repeated. Okay. Turn with me over to first John chapter two. First John chapter two. First <clears throat> John chapter two. Look with me at verse 12 when you get there. First John chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, I am writing to you. Young children, little children, born ones, because your sins have been forgiven because of his name. And the importance of this this statement, even more so than the the statement in Hebrews, is that the word forgive that he uses here in the Greek is a perfect tense, which means it's something that happened in the past and the result remains true. You were forgiven with the result that you remain forgiven. The second thing that's important about this passage is that he's talking to or writing to the little children. So, one of the first things that John assumes is that when you come to be saved, you understand that your sins are forgiven, that it's settled, it's done. Do we get that? It's done, it's over. We're not going to have to bring it up again. Does that mean we don't sin anymore? No, we sin. Is there a proper response to our sin? Yes. First John 1 John 1.9. Agree. And there's forgiveness there, and we're not here to really deal with that. But the reason there's forgiveness again when we confess our sins is there's, there's that sin issue creates a conflict between us and our relationship with God on our side. Not particularly on God's side, but it's on our side that that gets in the way when we don't want to recognize this. Now, the reason we're starting with this is because today we're going to be looking at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, first question that I want to ask this morning is, how many of you would you say you could go back in your Christian experience growing up, so let's go back a lot of years you're, you're saved. Maybe one or two years. Maybe a little bit more. How many of you heard somebody teach something? Doesn't make any difference what it was. But teach something about the judgment seat of Christ. How many of you heard somebody teach something about the judgment seat of Christ? Okay. About five or six of us here. Okay. How many of you at some point? What? Oh, too long ago. Okay. too. Long. So, you, so you're trying to remember if they ever taught it. Okay. How many of you ever... Were taught in some sense or another that it, at a future time, now, now you can fast forward. This doesn't have to be back early in your salvation. This maybe could have been 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, something like this. But somebody has taught you, you sat under teaching somewhere where somebody taught you that at the judgment seat, your sins... Are going to be brought up, and you're going to be questioned on why you did these bad things. How many of you were ever taught that kind of a thing? See, Stan's nodding his head, even though he didn't raise his hand. So, I caught that. So, yeah, this is this is a thing that that many Christians are taught. This is something I was taught. This is something with which I struggled for a long time in my Christian life, and it's. I would honestly say is the number one reason as a Christian that I did not live every day with an anticipation that today could be the day the Lord comes back for me. What I actually did was I lived, I wouldn't say every day because I didn't think about it every day, but when I did, I lived with a sense of dread, a sense of dread. Would anybody else have used the word dread? <laughs> I, I was, I was afraid I was afraid of the Lord coming back. Not because I thought I'd go to hell. I knew I was going to go to heaven. But I was afraid because I knew that I was in trouble. Because I knew I had sinned. I knew I had done things I should not have done. And I knew I wasn't. I was generally a moral kid. But all you'd have to do is ask my parents and they could tell you. I could also be a handful at home. I had a a tendency to mouth off a lot. Uh, And if I didn't agree with something that I was being required to do, man, or being asked to do, or the way I should respond to something, I could snap back and mouth off. And I got in a lot of trouble for that on a lot of occasions, in addition to doing other things that were bad too. And then as I got older, while I wasn't acting like everybody else, trust me, I can guarantee you, I still was doing things that I knew were wrong. And I had this overwhelming sense of guilt about that and there is a there is a way that there is a sense of guilt i think that is sometimes appropriate that it, that comes about because the holy spirit grieves in us because we are not where we're supposed to be and the spirit doesn't want us to be go oh it's okay you're sinning let's have joy no the spirit isn't going to produce joy in a sinning christian that would be you'd be having works of the flesh not fruit of the spirit you're one or the other So as we look at some passages today on the judgment seat of Christ, because we're looking at promises, and we're kind of looking now at future promises, and I don't think it was that long ago that we touched on some of this because it had bearing on some other matters. But I want to look at some passages that deal with the judgment seat of Christ today and help us, I think, have a a corrector, a correction uh, to the way sometimes we look. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And the reason we came to this passage back a while ago here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is, I'm going to go back up to verse 9 just so that you can see this again. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9. It says wherefore we make it our ambition or we make it our thing that about which we really place some exciting value on to, whether that we are those that are at home or whether those that are away from the home. Meaning we're still here in this body or we've died and we're out of this body that we should be, what does he say there? Pleasing to him. That by the way if you remember because we covered this when we were talking about our our future home, our future body in the state of death, that there is, in the middle of that, between life and death, there is a temporary body that we exist in. It's not going to be our permanent body. And so in in that body, where we're existing temporarily in the presence of God, in that situation, we can be pleasing to Him. That is important, because there are people in Christianity or Christendom, some are believers, some are not believers, that teach that when you die, you go into a state of soul sleep. And so from the time of your death until Christ comes back, you're just unconscious, laying in the grave. But this this passage would assure us that guess what? Even in the state of death, there's things, <coughs> excuse me, there's things that God can be doing through you or that can be done that he's pleased with. And so he says, if we go on here to verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the Greek word below the word judgment seat here is the Greek noun bema. Anybody ever heard anybody ever use the word bema or bema seat? Okay, And so somewhere along in my Christian life, before I went off to seminary, um, I ended up adopting the idea, it's not the judgment seat of Christ, it's the bama seat of Christ. So if I would have stood up in front of you and said, it's not the judgment seat of Christ, it's the bama seat of Christ, and you'd never heard anybody ever explain any of that before, what would that do for you? Zip. It would do zip for you because you don't know what bama means you have no understanding of the word bema. Well, are any of you Greek scholars? I'm not even a Greek scholar. I use it and study it every day, but I'm not a Greek scholar. So what does bema mean? Bema, if you actually look at it in Scripture, because it does occur a few places, bema simply referred to a raised platform from which a person stood to give speeches. And so we have it used that way in the book of Acts a couple of times. So it's where a person made speeches, but it's also where a person rendered judgments. And it was also a place from which the judges of games awarded awards. And it's with that kind of information that I came along and said, well, it's a Bama seat. Therefore, it's the reward seat. He's rewarding at the games. And there is a note of truth to that, but you don't derive that from the word bema. You derive that by studying the context in which Paul is going to explain this event. Does everybody get that? It's not part of the word specifically that's going to help you. It's going to be reading it in context. But that's true of a lot of words, that the word gets its meaning from context to some degree. And so he says here in verse 10, let's continue reading this, for we will all be, appear before before the bema, and by the way, that word before, it does mean before, but it's the idea of down in front of. So it's like there's the bema, and we're down in front of the bema. Now the one thing that's not part of the word bema, just so that you all know, just in case you might think this, the word bema does not mean a uh, 16 millimeter projector with a big movie screen that goes through and... Or a, or a, I guess it would be a digital projection. You you get what I'm saying. I mean, it's like we get this idea that God is going to play out in front of us. And it also used to be in my mind in front of everybody else. All my sins. And all these people are going to be seeing all these sins. Oh, I don't want them to see this. But that is not, that's not part of the word. and we. I think we all know that. I'm kind of, making fun there of the fact that that definitely is not part of the word. So he says, we're going to peer right down there in front of the judgment seat of Christ so that each one might, and uh, New American Standard has the word, a recompensed. Kylie, or when was the last time you used the word recompensed? Did you use that yesterday? Friday? Did I hear somebody say never? Was that you, Aaron? You, you've never used the word recompense. I don't even know what it means. You don't even know what it means, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Gary, when was the last time you used the word recompensed? In a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of weeks. <laughs> you might use the word compensation. Might use the word compensation, which, does, which is definitely related to this term. Exactly. The word, the Greek word that he uses, the Greek word komizo, and it literally means to carry something away. You show up somewhere and there's something that you carry away from that setting. So, putting this in terms of the games, you show up there at the judge's platform and the judge awards a medal to put around your, your neck and you carry that medal away saying, I finished first. I finished second. I finished third. By the way, my daughter told me yesterday, "Isn't it amazing when we look back in history? The Bronze Age is the third favorite age." I don't know. You gotta, you gotta appreciate the Bronze is third place. Get it? I, I, I laughed pretty hard. I thought it was a, I thought it was a really good. She's always trying to come up with dad jokes that she sends to me, and that was a, one that I. I enjoyed yesterday. Anyway, sorry. If, what? The Bronze Age is the third favorite age. Cause bronze is third place. <laughs> anyway, I I got a good chuckle out of it. Okay, if I guess you have to be a, you have to be a dad to appreciate a dad joke, huh? <laughs> anyway, but he says here he says that we're going to carry something away. He says the things of the body according to what he has done or practiced so you're going to carry something away you are going to carry something away from the judgment seat that's going to be related to the things you've practiced or done in the body and then he says at the end of this whether good or bad now bad has a lot of different connotations i appreciate the fact that the new american standard translates it bad and not evil because some translations translate this word evil Evil has a much stronger connotation in English than the word bad does. I mean, if uh, I remember, I don't know how many years ago it was, we were tromping over in a canyon with, uh, with Dan and Angie and there were some old apple trees that were out there and they were pretty much out of my reach but because I had somebody that could reach up a little higher than I could, he picked a couple of those apples and we tried those and those were not good apples over there. <laughs> They were not good they were bad apples but were they bad in the sense that they were naughty apples that they were sinful apples? no, they just weren't any good. I wouldn't I was like I would eat this if I needed food, but I wouldn't eat it because it tastes good right and I'm like that with. No offense to my neighbors, but they raise galas out back. I don't like galas. Galas are in my, this is only my opinion, they're a bad apple, even though lots of people like them. But I don't like them that well, see? So bad does not mean moral. It just means hmm, it's not what you want it to be. And if this time of year you put some apples in the shed and you go out in December, those apples might have become bad, right? You're not going to eat them now. You pick them up and toss them out because they're all... Like this. He says here with this word foul on here, it's something that's good for nothing. Good for nothing. That's one of the definitions. I went back and looked these up this week just to kind of check myself on this word. And so I was looking up some of my lexicons because I just wanted to see how would these guys, different people say it. And one of them just said foul on means it's good for nothing. So you put all kinds of effort into doing something and it ended up being good for nothing i raised a crop and my crop turned out to be good for nothing but isn't fallow like a fallow field well we say that we don't get the word fallow from this word don't. but but it sounds very much like it but it was a fallow field it's good for nothing in terms of a crop you no know, in terms of a crop in terms of a crop in yes terms of a crop. yeah it has there there purpose. is a yeah. If you go back to some of the dryland country in in Montana and and North Dakota, they let they they till up they till a plot and then they leave it fallow and they till plot bet, and they go back and forth so that the soil has the ability to build up moisture and build up what it needs to put a crop back on it. So there is a value to them in doing that. So he's talking here about that we have done something that is either good, it's been beneficial for ourselves or for somebody, or it's been good for nothing. Now, if you participate in something and you carry something away, but it was what you did was good for nothing, what do you think you're going to carry away? Nothing. Well, if it's good for nothing, you're not going to carry anything away from that. You don't carry away from there a licking you're not getting a beating, you're not getting scolded, you're carrying nothing away. That's all, that, that's all that's involved in that, based on what you did. It's all that that's saying. Everybody gets this? You're either carrying something away that was done good, or you carry nothing away from it. Which, our next passage is actually going to uh, state this uh, precisely in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter three, and this passage is very important on this. This is the passage that uh, this is the passage that some people actually turn to and build kind of a negative case on the judgment seat of Christ here. 1 Corinthians chapter three, and we're going to go to. Um, uh, let's go to verse 9, just pick up some context. This I have it up here, starts at verse 12, but we're going to go back up to verse 9. In the context, he's talking about different people serving in the body. And he first starts off the fact that w- one way of looking at the body of Christ or the church is that we're a field, we're a farm. And Paul and Apollos, they were just workers on God's farm. But then he switches in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and then God's building. So now we move from the metaphor of a field to the metaphor of a construction site. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, another building upon it, but let each man be careful or watch or look how he builds on that foundation. Now this is Paul's charge to you and I. You pay attention, you keep your eye on, you watch how you're building on this foundation. Because you're all, if you're in the body of Christ, you're building on this foundation in one way or another, what you're doing. God's given you works to do, many of those works are going to involve, or I would say maybe all of those works involve one way or another, how you're building on this foundation. So he says, verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, we come to verse 12. If a man builds on the foundation, gold, silver, or precious stones. Never seen anybody build that kind of stuff on a foundation in a building. But this is obviously a metaphor for what he's doing. And he's looking at the fact that you're building with valuable materials versus, or he he goes on, Wood, which is kind of the way we build normally. Hay, that seems odd to us to use hay, but you need to understand there's a lot of cultures to this day that their structures are built out of a combination of hay and wood. And even the last one, straw. Now we all know I growing up as a kid, this is amazing because I knew people that made hay. I didn't understand the difference between hay and straw. I do now. I don't know how I never knew that growing up. I helped, I helped stack hay, and I didn't know the difference between the two. I was like, why do they call some of that straw and some of it hay? Oh yeah, I think the reason I didn't know, because nobody where I grew up raised wheat. So there wasn't really any straw, and a few people raised oats but I never stacked any oat straw for any of those people ever. It was just always hay. So I didn't know that there was something different. And then I move out here and lots of people raise wheat and they make bales, they bale the wheat straw afterwards. But that's what he's talking about here. Because this word straw, actually, the Greek word means grain stubble. <laughs> that's what the, the Greek word meant. It meant with the stubble that was left over when you were done harvesting grain, okay? And we look at these things and we kind of chuckle at this, thinking, no, oh, this is an interesting metaphor. But the thing is, we need to remember there are places in the world to this day that that's the way they build their homes. They build them out of these things that seem very unstable and very temporary to us, right? I'm glad I'm not in a hay and straw house on a windy day like yesterday afternoon or this morning, Right would be afraid it'd be stronger than the old wolf that blew, blew down the, the pig's house. But he says, this is what some people would build with. And so he's comparing, he's comparing these things, obviously, with this. And he says, so each man's work will become, and this word that's translated evident in the New American Standard is a word meaning plainly visible, no matter what you may have made your work out to be, no matter what you and your mind think the work may have been, it's actually going to be seen for what it is. Now, I don't think it's seen for everybody else. Clinton's not going to be sitting there going, what did Tim do over there? Let me look at that. I'm not going to be checking out and going over there. "What What stands works? We're going to look at a verse in a little while. This is all about you and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not about you and everybody else in this moment. And he says, so it becomes plainly evident. And the day, the day will make it plain, will show it or make it plain because it is to be revealed by fire. Now, if you go back up and you take those things, the gold, silver, and the precious stone, and you expose them to a little bit of fire, well, they might melt down. I have heard that precious stones... Exposed to the right amount of fire, will crack and even can be can burn. Some of them can actually go through a process of, of starting on fire. But we certainly know wood hay and straw. That talk about something that's combustible, and so he says there, those things will be revealed by fire, for the fire will test it. And the interesting thing about the word test here is it's the Greek verb dokimazo, which means to put it to the test looking for something good. You're not expecting failure. You want to see what good there is in it. So you mine out a chunk of ore, you take it into the assayer's office, and you want them to test it because you don't want to find out if it's junk. You wanna, you're hoping there's something good. You're hoping they're telling you telling there's a lot of value in there. And he says, it will prove then what each man's work is. So now let's put this in the context. I want you to think about this for a second. He's used two metaphors back up in verse 9, preceding verse 9 and then after. The idea that we're the field and the idea that we're a construction site for a building. And he says, so let each of you consider how, or pay attention, how you build. What is he talking about in both of those cases, the field or the construction site? He's saying that all of us are doing what? We're doing work where? Yeah, Ben's going here, in the body of Christ, in a part of the body of Christ. Is this, the the test of the fire, is this testing your sins? No. No. We started off in Hebrews, uh, uh, in Hebrews 10, and in 1 John 2, the sin issue is gone. It's taken care of. It's forgiven. It's sent away. He is not checking out your sins here. He's looking at why did you serve in the body of Christ the way you served? So to point the finger at myself, Tim, why did you study to teach this Bible study or any Bible study? Why did you take time to talk with that person? Did you do it because you wanted to look better in their eyes? Did you study for this Bible study to impress people? Or did you do this out of a real love for other people, loving them the way that Christ told us to love them? them? That's what it comes down to. Did you do do these activities with the right motive? We're going to look at a verse a little while ago that While Paul certainly is saying here, you look at how you're doing, there is a a point at which you do pay attention to your motive. But then we're also going to see a verse that's going to balance that a little bit in just a minute. So if any man's work, which he has built on, it remains. In other words, I know I've done things for the wrong reason. I, hey, years ago, um, Jennifer's dad extended an invitation for me to go down to California and speak at one of their Bible conferences. I went down there. I took a paper with me. And I went down there. And I had an axe to grind. And I ground that axe. And boy, I'm telling you, everybody was nice to me. Nobody ever said, nobody ever took me and pinned me to the wall and said, Tim, what was that all about? but I got a very strongly yet kindly worded letter from a good friend saying, you said this, this, and this, but you know that the Word of God says this, this, and this. And I understand why you're saying these things, but this is what happens when you so want to prove a point You so want to prove something to somebody, you are willing to take the word of God and twist it from what it plainly says to make it say something you want it to say, which is exactly what I was doing. It was one of those things. You you can be thankful that that happened, as horrible as that was, because that was one of the events that God used in my life. I remember having to call uh, Steve down there and say, I'm really sorry. You gave this kind opportunity for me to come down and speak, and then I did this. And I said, I am very sorry that I did that. Now, I'm not saying I was up there yelling at anybody or doing anything like that. It had to do with the way I handled the word to try to prove a point. But you know what that did for me? So I'm just trying to encourage you. If you ever go through these kind of things, learn something from that. Don't just look at it and then scowl and go, I always get Fs. Don't do it that way. Look at it and say, you know what? I got an F. What's an F tell me? I need to think... Differently about the way I'm approaching this. I need to learn better. I need to and so what it actually did was it encouraged me that, you know, it was time to quit time to quit grinding axes. And I'm not saying I don't ever do this anymore, but it really has helped me stop grinding axes. It doesn't do you any good to listen to me sit up here and spew away in anger and in fury and such at some something that you guys don't even maybe know is even going on which sometimes is what happens. Anyway, that's an aside. Back to the main point here. Learn from those things, but you receive then if, if, if it remains. In other words, if it goes to the test of the fire and something's left over, guess what? You walk away with something. This is kind of what we were just looking at in 2 Corinthians 5. You walk away with that metal, as it were. There's not a metal here. We looked at these a couple weeks ago, or back a few weeks ago, and it doesn't say it directly here, but what is it that you carry away? A victor's wreath, that woven golden wreath that you wear on your head that says, I crossed the finish line. It's not a participant's wreath. It's a a victor's wreath. It means you actually crossed and won, which does not mean in the body of Christ that you beat a whole bunch of other Christians, because it's not a competition with them. It's the fact that you finished the race that God said, this is your race. This is what I've set before you. These are your opportunities. And you've crossed that finish line and you've done some of these things to his glory and you get a winner's wreath, which you're then, according to the book of Revelation, we're going to take off our heads and we're going to throw back at his feet and say, you're the one that's worthy. If I have anything here to show for what happened, it was because of you. It wasn't because I was anybody better than anybody else. However, verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, so I taught a Bible study for the wrong reason. I wrote, wrote a paper and went to a Bible conference and presented something to try to make a point. Not actually to anybody that was there. I did try to make it for their benefit, but I didn't have a problem with any of those poor people that were at that Bible conference and that work is burned up and it says, and I still find this very interesting. They have this word translated twice here, or represented twice. That Greek word only occurs one time in that passage, but it's the word suffer, loss. The word, and I still remember teaching on this topic that we're teaching on today, teaching on this at a Bible conference, and I remember having a pastor come up to me and goes, ah, I have a problem with that. Because over here in First Corinthians chapter three, it says here, what's that say? What's that word in the Greek or in the English? I mean, suffer. <clears throat> so you're gonna suffer. If you lose, you suffer. And I tried to explain to him. No, the word does not have any note of suffering in the word. He goes, Well, why do they translate it suffer? Because it's an old that comes out of the old English, suffer meant to experience something. You're simply going to experience a loss. So don't equate this with our thing of, oh, I'm suffering, it hurts so bad. It's not what this word means. It just means that there's a loss. You you went in there, you did a whole bunch of works for God because that's what's being judged and they were burned up and there's nothing to show for all that work and all that effort that you put into those things, it's gone. And people say, well, that sounds like Suffering. Well, if you were not changed when you met Jesus Christ before that, probably in your soul there would be some suffering. But having been changed when you see Christ as you meet him here at the judgment seat and stand before him, you're changed and you're going to look at it. And as one of my friends used to put it, you're going to look at what's left over left over. He says, I'm going to look at that and say, man, that's about right. <laughs> not going to sit there and go, what? Did you not see the pile of stuff that was on there a little while ago? And it's dwindled down and there's some ash and maybe something left. That's about right. Now, I don't know that that's what, that what's that's what's going to be said, but you get this. But it goes on. The last part, and I just always think it's important to clarify this, but he himself will be saved yet by the skin of his teeth. It doesn't say that. Literally, we have this yet. They translate this death. They translate it, yet, yet so as through fire. And that makes it sound like, well, he's saved, but yeah, but just through fire. But that's not what that verse means. That's the, All that debt is, is it's a conjunction particle in the Greek that we translate now or but, sometimes and. And I would just say, he will be saved. But in this way, because this word so is in this way, through fire. In other words, one of the last things that your Savior is going to do for your salvation is get rid of all the junk that you don't really want to carry around with you. You really want to carry all that junk around with you? How many of you lived in some place more than 10 years? How many of you have lived in one place for more than 10 years? Now, how many would you would say that in that more than 10-year time that you've lived there, that you've kept everything that you own pared down to the bare minimum? (laughs) No one's going to raise their hand. (laughs) That's right, because we, we, yeah, my wife's giving me a good grin here, (laughs) because I'm way worse at this than my wife is. She's not this way very much at all. We collect stuff. Stuff piles up. It just keeps piling up and piling up, piling up. It piles up so bad that some of us actually have to go out and build new sheds and new buildings out back to store all the stuff that we keep. What? Oh, she's saying, no, I can't do that. Okay. But the thing is, some, some of the stuff that we collect over time is worth or, worthwhile, right? There's a reason we hold on to it. But is there some stuff that we've collected over time that it's like, you kind of look at it and go, why do I even have that? I've owned that thing for ten years. I've never used it. It's got no real value to it. It's just taking up space. It's a thing to weed whack around, maybe. I don't know. Just sit down, be quiet. <laughs> anyway, save through fire is the fact that you know, as we've served and worked in this life down here, there is stuff that we collect as part of our service to God what we call our service to God. And some of that stuff you don't really want to you really don't want to load it up in the loading van and take it with you to heaven. You're going to want it burned up. You're going to want it gone because you I I don't want I don't want to remember that Bible that that Bible study conference message, I don't know whatever you want to call it that I did. And that's not the only time I've done stuff like that. In fact, I remember one time uh I've probably told you this before too, but we were down at Stan and Linda's and we're sitting at the kitchen table and somebody brings something up and they're talking about it and so I kind of gave an answer and then they countered with another answer and then it was, as my wife would have put, I kind of became like a dog with a bone. And I still remember Stan just very kindly just put his hand over on my shoulder and he goes, it's okay, just let it go. <laughs> I really appreciated that because if he hadn't have done that, those poor people might have sat there and listened to me try to try to correct that issue for a long time. In fact, Stan had to encourage me on something with that just a couple weeks ago. I appreciate that because I know my nature. I can be like a dog with a bone and things like that. and that doesn't benefit anybody and it doesn't even benefit me in that process. So he says they're saved. Through fire. The last thing that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do for you is going to get rid of that junk. This is not purgatory, by the way. This is a wonderful thing because it's not you going through the fire. It's your works of service for God that are being burned up. There's no sins here at the judgment seat. Sins were taken care of by Jesus Christ in the past. This is why did you do what you're doing? Why do you show up for church and take time with other believers? Why do you run the computer for us? Which I really appreciate Clinton doing this for us. Why do you do those kind of things? Dwight, why did you help me put caulk around my window the other day? He helped me put a new window in my office and caulk it in like that. Why do you go to the mission field? Why do you teach Bible studies and Sunday? Why, I mean, there's all kinds of things. Why do you fix food for your friends when they're sick or they need help? Why do you do these things? Why? None of those things are bad or wrong. It's just a matter of why. Did you do it out of love? Or did you do it because, well, it's the right thing to do. It's just the right thing to do. And what do people, by the way, what would people think if I didn't? (laughs) See? What would they think if I didn't? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, if you didn't hear Peggy, she goes, some people say, well, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It, It can be the right thing to do. But it's, should, if it's going to be the right thing to do, then you ought to do it with the right attitude, which is really what this comes down to. It ought to be done out of love. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to point something out that, that Paul says over here. Paul's talking about what he did, what he was doing, and he says in verse 3, to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by a, we have the human court, literally, by man's day. In fact, he says, I don't even examine or I don't even evaluate myself now over just in the last chapter Paul said over there you watch how you do what you do on the on the building site you watch how you build pay attention but now Paul's actually saying but I don't evaluate I don't spend all my time going oh is the motive right I don't know you know you could spend so much time evaluating your motives you don't do anything you end up sitting on your hands in fact there's a lot of Christians going well I don't think I could do that with the right motive so I'm not going to do that Well, then get your motive straightened out. You can make that choice. You can correct the way you think about it. You have the ability to remember who you are in the body of Christ, who you are seated with all those other believers at the Father's right hand, and you can get your thinking straight so you can have the right motive. And when you have the right motive, then you can do it for the right reason. But as Paul's saying here, but I don't go around examining myself all the time this is not the way I operate. For I am, he says in verse four, I am conscious of nothing. In other words, Paul says, Hey, I'll be honest. When I serve, I sound like I got a guilty conscience going, Paul, you did this. Paul, you did that. No. Paul says, no, I'm not conscious. I don't have a guilty conscience of this against myself yet. He says, I am not, it's not a word acquitted. It's, it's, I'm not declared righteous. In other words, just because i just because i have a good attitude as far as i'm concerned doesn't necessarily mean that what i did was actually righteous because as he says the one who examines me is the lord therefore do not then pass judgment or do not judge before the time for wait until the lord comes who will both bring to light and here's why paul says i'm not acquitted i'm not righteous by these things i bring to light the the things that the hidden things of darkness And he will then make plainly visible the determinations of the heart. And then each man will have praise from God. Notice it says, doesn't say some men will have praise from God. Each man will have praise from God. Every believer has had things that at the very least they've determined to do. And so everybody's going to have praise from God. Every man's going to have praise from God. But Paul, as he looks at this, he says, but there are other things the Lord's going to bring to light. And some of those things he's going to bring to light are these hidden things, the things that I can't see. When I look at you and your activities, I don't know why you did it. I sometimes don't even know exactly what I, I can think my motives are straight, but sometimes buried in there a little bit. Yeah, there's kind of, oh yeah, I'm kind of doing it for that reason, but I'll get that. I just, I'll, I'll fix that. All he's saying here is, don't go around judging each other's motives. Well, I, I listened to Jim's Sunday School class this morning, and I think he was just trying to put me in my place. You ever feel like that when somebody's teaching the Word? <laughs> so then you think his motives are questionable, maybe because of the way you were made to feel by the Word of God. Or you could go, oh, well, he threw out two or three Greek words. Like He's just trying to show off. <laughs> you could see, you could have all kinds of motives. You know what? I think if Jim shares some Greek words or some Hebrew words, or if Jim's put in the time to study and to do all the light work, it's because I'm gonna just assume because he wants to love the saints enough that the saints benefit from the teaching of the word. So I'm not gonna judge him. And I trust he doesn't judge me. Or the rest of you, in terms of all oh, their their motives are questionable. Their motives are quite the only time you'd ever question a person's motives if they open their mouth and say, Well, I could tell a story that Dwight shares with me about an individual that was like, hey, if I help you with this, do I get some time out of purgatory? Only to find out that they were in the Lutheran church and the Lutheran church didn't believe in purgatory. <laughs> but on a very serious note, if somebody opened their mouth and kind of told you what they, something about their motives, then maybe you would know. Now from here, I want to go over to the book of Romans in chapter 14. Because there's a very important statement here in Romans 14. We pointed this out before, but I, I, I continue to come back to this. this. This verse here was very important in my coming to better understand the judgment seat of Christ. And so he says in Romans 14, it says, But why do you then judge your brother? Or, uh, you again, why do you despise your brother or regard your brother with contempt? So you got two people on this side. you got the strong brother, he's, he is, uh, well, it's actually, the, it's the weak brother first is the one that's judging the stronger brother, and then the stronger brother is looking at the weak brother with contempt. We will all stand or literally be made to be present before, same word here that we've had in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, the bema or the judgment seat, here he calls it of God, and I believe in this context he's referring to God the Son. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. So even though you stand before the judgment seat, you need to understand by the quotation here, this is going to be at least one of the times in your life for sure that you really will bow your knee to God. You will bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And every tongue shall confess or give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account, what's the next expression there? Of himself to God probably one of the most I would say one of the most important things to get straight in your head when you think to the future is I'm not there to say God's going Tim you did this yeah but but Jeremy did that Jeremy did that and Ben did that he's like we're not here to talk about Jeremy and Ben we're to talk about you this is about this is about the two of us here Is that an important thing to think about? I'm not there to give a word. I'm not there to give testimony about anybody else. I'm there to give a word with regard to myself. Now, I will be honest, this word that's translated give an account, it is simply a translation of the singular noun, logos. Logon in this case, because it's accusative for my Greek student down here. but it, and an account can be okay because Logos actually has quite a breadth of meaning. And so so, so Logos, the singular word, sometimes can, re, can refer to a whole talk that a person gives. So it may be that way. If you let me just be very literal with the term, I'm going to give a word. And I think one of the word, one of this expression, I have to look this up because this does not pull up everything here um and verse 12 i just want to make sure before i make this statement yes in front of that word word is the greek preposition peri and the word peri as it is used uh, it refers to a general thing and if you don't don't say that this is what it is i'm but i'm just telling you In my mind, when I come to that, it could be an account. I have to sit and I have to give him an account. But there's also the very real possibility that I'm going to give him a general word concerning myself. And you know what word? There's only one word that I can think of. Well, maybe two. That I could think that I could render for anything that comes out of the judgment seat. Grace. Or love. Not my love, his love. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is something, by the way, in Romans that he says at the end of Romans chapter 8. And nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And I might look at whatever's left over after it's been tested by fire, and I'm going to look at it, and if there's something there, I'm going to look at it and it said grace. Because I don't know about you, but if there is anything to show for this life, that God's allowed me to live down here. If there's anything to show for that has any value in the future, it's going to be because of His grace. It is certainly not going to be because I functioned or was better in any way than anybody else. And I hope you can see that, that that's true for you too. Now I'm just I'm just making a suggestion that that may be. Paul is indicating you say well why doesn't Paul just say that that's why it may be an account but I think that there's maybe something to be thought about in terms of how this actually all plays out and comes about the result of all this is just to look at two passages very quickly quickly at the end of all this is turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and again I, there's there, there's nothing there's nothing we're going over today there is nothing we're going over today that you haven't heard before we've gone over this before, but it's good for us to be reminded of these things and he says in ephesians five twenty five husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her set her apart, having cleansed her by a washing of water with a word that he might present it to himself a church in all of her glory or literally and I wouldn't say in all her glory this word that's translated in all her glory literally is a church wrapped in glory a church that is glorious having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing in other words you realize when the judgment seat of Christ is all done and he presents us to himself we're coming as his bride and he is presenting us as his bride to himself There's not going to be any tarnishes. He's going to go, what, did you just eat spaghetti? There's a big spot of spaghetti over there on your dress. Is that a mustard stain down the front? I mean, this would be me, the way I eat and spill stuff all over. But there's not going to be anything like that. And obviously, we're not talking about literally spilling food. We're talking about the stains that would come from just the junk that happens in life. There's no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be Look at those two beautiful words, holy and blameless, holy in the fact that we really are going to be set apart. We're not going to be divided. Are sometimes we, are we divided right now? Are sometimes, do we sometimes act like a wayward bride now? All you got to do is read James four. If you're loving the things of the world, guess what? You're like a wayward bride. of the wayward bride because James tells us that he calls us adulteresses when you're chasing after the things of the world whatever those things may be but you know what's going to happen when we're out there we're really going to be set apart he's going to be it we're not going to be keeping an eye on What about that guy over there? He looks, and you understand because we're like the bride. So I'm not saying I have an interest in guys. Just trying to make sure you don't mistake what I'm saying. But you're talking about, you're not a bride standing there with her husband checking out, well, that groomsman's kind of cute over there. No, that kind of thing doesn't go on. We are going to be loyal to him. Holy. Secondly, and blameless. Blameless. You're not going to be able to sit and say, Wait a second. You know they they do that at weddings. If any man has any reason that these two should not be married, let him speak now. I know, but no, there's not going to be any of that. Blameless. Blameless. He's presenting us to himself holy and blameless. Isn't that beautiful? Paul says the same thing using the same language at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 that after the son presents us to himself, he's gonna take us and he's then gonna present us before the father and he's gonna bring us home and he says, dad, here's my bride. And we're gonna be holy and blameless. This is what he does to finish off the judgment seat of Christ. This is the result of it all coming to its conclusion. Isn't that beautiful? Judgment seat of Christ is not a thing to dread. It's not a thing that we're to go, oh, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want the Lord to come back because I don't want to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. It's a thing where we can look at it and say, he is going to take care of all of this stuff and he's going to evaluate what we did, how we served, why. And the result of it is there's going to be a reward, but there's also going to be the result that we're going to be holy and without blame. Father, we're thankful for this great plan of salvation that was planned as an expression of your love and your righteousness and your truth and as we oftentimes point to, your grace. But that salvation is not just what you did for us in the past. It is what is being done for us right now, you the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it is also what will happen when your Son returns for us. And help us as we understand these things more accurately that it might cause us to appreciate and anticipate his coming for us even more as we live the days that you've given us here on this earth. And we thank you for this then. Amen.